Family, this passage is so precious to me. I, it's never been precious to me before. I don't, know, I don't know why. I don't know why I was so blind. But this is one of my favorite passages now. And it's so sweet. And there's so much more here. And I just want to say this. Is that if you ever read your Bible and you come across a passage where you felt like you've read it before. And you're like, oh, I've seen this before. One of the great privileges I have to preach God's word to you on a regular basis is that I get to look at passages that I've read many times before. And sometimes I get those passages assigned to me and I'm like, oh man, not that one. I know that one. Everyone knows that one. And yet as I labor over God's word on my knees and in prayer and reading from other godly men and women who have been in that text as well, I'm blown away at the immeasurable depths of God's word. It is a truly a diamond that you cannot turn To see one facet that is not new. And it's beautiful. I'm excited to show you that. This this word is amazing. So if you don't have your Bible yet open and you're going to just passively watch me as I talk to you about God's word, you're doing it all wrong. So make sure of your Bible out and looking at the passages because ultimately the authority does not come from me or my life experience or what I have to say, but God's word. So today we're looking at two stories that from the casual observer looks like they're separated, but they're intricately connected. God has sovereignly put them together and Luke has uh, beautifully weaved them together. Well, they happen simultaneously, but he's trying to present a very uh, strong picture to us by bringing them together in a very emphatic way. So I have two major points that I think God is trying to show us in this word and that Jesus takes two very impossible, very desperate situations and does the impossible out of them by desperate faith. He takes two very impossible situations that you could never fathom could be redeemed. And he does something that only he can do and shows how authoritative and powerful he is and how good he is. Furthermore, we're also going to see that there's always teaching in his timing. There's always teaching in God's timing. We're going to see several times in this passage how God's timing is is sovereign and planned and good. And that's a very good thing for us today because I really struggle trusting God sometimes with his timing. Why this long? Why this way? Why not now? And we're going to see that God has teaching in his timing. So look at verse 40 with me, Luke 8, 40. We're going to be finishing chapter 8 today. Luke 8, 40. Now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him for they were all waiting for him. Now, I want to launch off of this verse and I'm actually going to speak like this for a second. And I want to know if the back can hear me like Isaiah. Can you hear me even if I'm speaking like this? Can you hear me like this? Okay, wonderful, because that's going to save my voice. So it says that Jesus returned. What did Jesus return from doing? Well, let's look at the literary context. And when I mean literary context, I mean what just happened right before, according to what we read in Luke. And then we're going to go into some cultural context, and then we're going to get into some delicious meat in God's word. Okay, so over the last few sections, especially in Luke 8, Jesus is systematically showing his supremacy over every untamable area of life. Every area that no man can tame, no matter how smart they are, no matter how much technical uh, 
technological innovations take place, man cannot tame it. So you see Jesus calming the storm with just a word, and people are marveling and terrified at, who is this man? You see Jesus casting out a legion of demons out of a man that literally would not be tamed. He was naked, and he could break off shackles that no one could could, could came, and he casts them out even without trying. And the people stand in fear. And so you see that Jesus has authority, ultimate authority over nature. Who has authority over nature? No one but God. And you see he has absolute authority over demons. Who has authority except Jesus? God. And now we're going to see that Jesus has authority over disease and death. Jesus has authority over disease and death. And I just want to remind you, we've been on this trek through Luke. In the very first chapter of Luke, Luke is writing to who? Do you guys remember? Theophilus. And why is he writing to Theophilus? He's saying, hey, Theophilus, so you can be certain of the things. And as you read and listen to Luke chapter 8, this is to help give you faith to have certainty about who Jesus is. That he is really the God-man. And so we're getting into our text from that. Now, I want to give you a little bit of cultural commentary about cultural context in this time, about women. Now, I'm so glad I was not born a woman in that time. Now, I know that's going to sound bad, but let me give you a little glimpse. There was a popular Jewish blessing that many men would pray when they would wake up. They would say this, blessed are you, Adonai, our Elohim, ruler of the universe, who has not created me a woman. Now, if you're not familiar with your Bible, that is not in the Old Testament. So if you're, if you're not familiar with the Bible, hear me. But that was a cultural blessing that many men would pray in the morning. Thank God I'm not a woman. Now, I want you to know that what Jesus and the New Testament does in elevating the rightful value of women is unprecedented there is no feminist movement no revolution no book out there that has more shown the value and the beauty and the goodness of women than jesus in his bible and we're gonna see in this text jesus caring about two daughters that nobody else would typically care about I'm using this cultural context to help you understand that with all the different accusations against the Bible today and Christianity, oh, Christianity is such an oppressive religion. Oh, it's so patriarchal. And yet, what they do not realize is that so much of the advancements of the value of women are actually from the Bible. Amen? And so, it's, we're going to just see it again. And the beauty and how Jesus doesn't just value women, he cares for them. He meets them in their greatest need, where they're at, in a very personal way, far greater than you may realize. So, let's look into it. Alright, you ready? Jesus has authority over death and disease, and he cares about these two daughters. Let's go. The first daughter, verse 41. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of a synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he had only, he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. Now, real quick, let's talk about Jairus. He was the ruler of the synagogue. What is that? Basically, the man 
in charge of arranging the service and the progress of worship. Because the synagogue gathered weekly and they would have like a worship service, kind of like what we have today. And so this man is kind of a big deal. And yet this big deal falls at Jesus' feet, begging him, which is not kind of what you want to do if you want to endear yourself to the Pharisees, because the Pharisees at this point were not loving Jesus and what he's about. And so this man, who's a very much a big deal, falls at Jesus' feet. What would cause a grown man to fall at Jesus' feet? You know what? Losing your only daughter. Now, uh, Charlotte, are you, how old are you? You're 13. Okay, so imagine one year younger than Charlotte. That's how old this girl is. And at that time would be a marriageable age, about to be married in Israel in that time. So there you go. So Susanna, you'd be super old by now. So imagine fathers who have daughters. There's a handful of us. Your only daughter dying on the sick bed. What lengths would you go for her? I was trying to put myself in my shoes thinking about my firstborn daughter, Eden, whom I love. If she was dying, what would I do? I would lose my mind and I would do whatever I could. And so that kind of desperation is propelling Jairus to fall at Jesus' feet. But notice that Jairus, Jesus responds to Jairus and, and goes with him. But Jairus does not pull rank. He does not slip him a bill. He's not saying, hey, do you know who I am, Jesus? And by the way, let me leverage that to get you to listen to me and help my daughter. What moves Jesus' heart? The desperation and the faith of Jairus. Because for Jairus to do this thing, he must have some level of faith that Jesus can do such a thing. Because if he didn't believe he could do such a thing, why would he humiliate himself by falling on his face in front of this whole community that everyone could say, oh, look at Jairus falling on his feet. He must believe in Jesus. So he has faith in Jesus. And he falls to his feet, implores Jesus, and that moves his heart. And that's something we're going to see again That what moves Jesus' heart is not status or money, but desperation and faith in him. And that's really good news for us nobodies. That's really good for us church, especially knowing that most of our church is under the poverty line. That's great news for us. That Jesus isn't moved by status or money. So, Jesus stops everything and follows him. And now as he's on his way, going to this house of this dying daughter, he has a divine interruption. And notice I say divine interruption. I don't say just an interruption. You're going to see the interruptibility of Jesus. And how it all has divine design. Look at verse 43 with me if you would. The second daughter. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. Now, as a way to understand what's going on with this woman, sometimes it's helpful for you to draw from personal experiences and compare them to help you feel and enter into that world. So I'm going to talk to you about my wife, Joanna, for a minute. And what I'm going to show you is the similarities between my wife, Joanna, and this woman. And then I'm going to show you how woefully different they are. I'm going to argue from the lesser, Joanna, to the greater, this woman, to help us understand. Now, about 15 years ago, my wife, Joanna, came upon an unknown skin disease. 
the way it manifests is that her hands, first her left, now some of her right, on the fingertips, they crack and they bleed. Her skin is so dry and bad in her fingers that she literally does not have fingerprints. So she would make a great cat burglar because she has no fingerprints. So she'd be in and out and they would say, whose prints are these? There's nothing. Who is this ghost? That would be my wife. But as funny as that is, it has been very painful and uncomfortable for her for years because how often do you use your fingers? Yeah, pretty often, right? So she can't play piano like she used to. She'll be randomly walking around and be like, Sam, my hand's bleeding. She sleeps with gloves with all kinds of ointments. She's been to so many different doctors, Eastern medicine, Western medicine, all the kind of essential oils and all the multi-level marketing systems have been thrown at us, if you know what I'm saying. We've tried dieting, we've tried it all. We've spent thousands of dollars to try to find a cure. My wife to this day cannot give me a massage because of this. So she says. And this has been hard, 12 years, 15 years of this. And we have prayed. We have been prayed over. We have been anointed with all kinds of different oils. And yet God in his wisdom has seen fit not to bring healing yet. And that's where Joanna is kind of like this woman of 12 years. This woman suffering for 12 years has spent lots of money finding a cure. She's been to numerous physicians. She's been praying this whole time, I'm sure. And she's found zero relief. The text says anyone can heal her. No one could heal her. But this is where the similarities break down. This woman spent all of her living on doctors. I still have money in the bank. This woman has none because she spent it all on doctors. Her ailment is not one of hands, but of blood. And so most scholars would argue that she has a uterine bleeding issue. And imagine this time, they don't have feminine products. And if you understand the Old Testament law, you understand that there will be a few things you could do to make yourself ceremonial, ceremonially unclean. One of it would be touching blood and having a flow of blood. And you would temporarily be quarantined as you recover or as it stops. And then you could be reunited with society. But the problem with her is it never stopped. Imagine women, I don't want to be crass, but never having your period stop. Does that hit home a little more? Never having it stop for 12 years. And this is causing her to be ceremonial unclean. And let me explain what being unclean is in a very basic way, is that being unclean didn't mean you were necessarily sinful, but it was a reminder that everything was affected by sin. Let me say that again. Being unclean didn't mean you were inherently guilty of sin, but it reminded you and the community that everything was tainted by sin, especially our blood, especially life and death, especially everything. And so being unclean was a ritual process that helped Israelites understand the brokenness of the world and how they needed shalom and how they could rightfully approach God and also relate with the community. And so, because she was ceremonially unclean for 12 years and running, she was unable to have touch with other people. Imagine 12 years not being able to have a hug. Seriously, 
don't check out. Can you imagine having 12 years where you never have a hug? What kind of desperation? What kind of pain? What kind of questions about the goodness of God would come out of this woman's heart? She'd be separated from society, unable to marry. She would have been alienated and separated from her family and friends. Can you just imagine 12 years of isolation, 12 years of other people avoiding you? Can you imagine that? Walking into a group and people noticing who you are and walking away for 12 years? 12 years of not being able to draw near to God and to the temple courts. 12 years of rising and falling hopes. I just can't imagine what kind of struggle she had in her heart about her relationship with God. Is God good? Does he hear me? Does he see me? Does he see little old me? Because nobody else does. If God is good, he certainly would do something about this. Can anybody relate with her? I know I can. Because I can have moments where things don't go my way and I struggle. God, do you see me? Do you care? Are you good? Are you powerful? Are you wise? Maybe there's something in your life right now that you have prayed and prayed and prayed and sought and sought and sought and been patient and been patient and the answer has been no, 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 not yet, not yet, not yet, not yet. Let yourself draw yourself into this story because God has something for you. This woman heard the miracles of Jesus, probably saw some of them in the town she was in and thought to herself, Jesus is my only and my last hope. I must get to him. So look at verse 44. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. And what's that word? Gradually? Say it loud. Immediately, her discharge of blood ceased. 12 years of suffering with zero results and in an instant healed immediately. What no physician could do, Jesus did without even trying. Who is this man? Who is this one who can heal an incurable disease that no one has been able to touch? And what power is this? Who does such things? And Jesus knows this and he responds. Verse 45. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the, the crowds are around you and pressing in on you. Leave it to Peter to correct Jesus. You got to have some serious kahunas to correct Jesus so often. And I love, G- I love Peter because Peter gives me hope for myself because Peter is the kind of guy that you got to insert foot and mouth. And I'm, I'm like Peter. And so Peter is constantly trying to correct Jesus and state the obvious. Master, lots of people are touching you. Are you, are you dumb or something? But Jesus is not talking about an ordinary touch. He's talking about a desperate touch. He's talking about a touch with faith. A touch that says, you are all I hope have to hope for left. You're, you're, you're the one whom I'm putting everything I'm baking on. So Jesus explains, verse 46. But Jesus said, 
someone touch me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. Make no mistake, Jesus is not a battery. Whenever I've read this before, I'm like, that sounds funny. It kind of sounds like Jesus is like, oh no, I only have 85 units of healing power left, right? Don't take this as like he's a battery that dispenses power and now he's tired. But imagine he's unpacking that he felt this special kind of touch that resulted in power being moved. Now, I'm not that gifted in healing. And Joanna has reminded that before as I prayed for her as she's been sick. She, I remember recently, I told the Wilsons this the other day. I remember not long ago, I'm praying for Joanna and she's sick. And she looks up after me after I finish praying. She's like, you don't really have the gift. <laughs> well, thank you, my helper. You're just like, thank you, Joanna. Uh, but, but there's been a handful of times over the years, a few dozen times that I've seen God do miraculous healings. And I, I've literally felt power move through me. Now that power was not from me, but it was from the spirit. And I think that's what Jesus is mentioning. He, he's noticing all these, he's feeling all these touches, but all of a sudden he feels, oh, that was not a normal touch. Something's going on here. And I believe that Jesus knows enough and the Spirit is showing him enough that he knows what's going on here. He has actually divine purpose behind why he's asking these questions. He's trying to draw out this situation for several reasons. Now, as Jesus asks this question, you can imagine how scared this woman is. Why would she be scared? Well, one, is she supposed to be touching anyone? No. And so for her to touch Jesus, that was a no-no. And for her to touch Jesus probably means that she touched a lot of people along the way. And so for Jesus to call her out, you could maybe see a whole mob rise up against her. For she defiled all of them and now they would all have to go into some sort of quarantine. Kind of, we can relate to that today, can't we? The pandemic. Um, Notice what happens. Verse 47. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him. Notice her feelings. And she declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. So Jesus is using this situation not only to highlight the healing. And one second, I'm going to show you something else he's doing. But for her to be able to have an opportunity to testify of what God has done. Look at verse 48. This is the the greatest reason why he was highlighting this situation and not letting her just kind of hide and go off without being highlighted, this situation. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. If you've read your Bible, these words are dripping with connections and significance. He calls her what? Woman? Hey, you? Hey, unclean, stinky woman. What does he call her? Daughter. How many times does Jesus call a woman daughter in the New Testament? In in the entire Gospels? How many times? Zero. Zero times. This is the only time. That Jesus ever calls someone daughter. He calls her daughter. He calls her daughter. He calls the one that's been rejected and isolated and ostracized for 12 years and unclean daughter. 
What is he doing? He's publicly affirming her and honoring her and restoring her. How much shame did she carry for 12 years? He is restoring to her humanity and love and acceptance in front of this whole crowd saying, I accept her. And he calls her daughter. Do you remember the beginning of chapter 8? I think 821. What's going on in 821 if you want to look in your Bible? Jesus is identifying who his real family is. His family is not those who have blood with him, although they may if they trust him, but those who hear his word and do what he says. And what is this woman doing what he says that's so fundamental? That at the foundation of all obedience to Jesus is faith. Is desperate, poor in spirit, faith in Jesus. This woman has faith in Jesus. And so the great miracle that happens here is not only that she's healed from something no one could heal her of. But that she receives peace. She receives peace with God. Daughter, you're mine. You're mine. I own you. I'm adopting you. You're mine. You're part of my family. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Do you see that the greatest miracle God can give you is not merely physical relief from sickness, but giving you peace with himself? That's the greatest gift God can give anyone. For what does it profit a man if he is healthy, but loses his whole soul for eternity? Amen? God, Jesus sees deeper into just her physical need, but her ultimate spiritual need. He cares not about just some temporary suffering, but eternal suffering. (sighs) Jesus is amazing. He makes her clean. And this is so significant because typically if you were to touch someone who is unclean, what would happen to you? You would become what? And yet Jesus being God, when she reaches out and touches him, she does not make him unclean. He makes her clean. His mercy is greater than her sinfulness. His cleanliness is greater than her dirtiness. And this is so important for us Christians and unchristians, non-Christians out there. Sometimes we can feel like we've exhausted the grace and mercy of God. We've done too much. We've already apologized before a hundred times. And we've exhausted it and we can't go back to him. Because we will taint him. We're too dirty. And this passage just reminds us on a ceremonial and a moral level that your uncleanness can never be dirtier than Jesus' cleanliness. As the Puritan pastor famously said, there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. There's more mercy in Christ than sin in us. And that is good news. And if you're holding on to sin because you're like, I can't give this to him. I'm too dirty. I've done this too many times. I've already apologized. Then you are misunderstanding and how potent his purity is. That can just absolutely overwhelm. Any dirt. Notice what Jesus says. Your faith has made you well. Your faith has made you well. How does her faith make her well? Does that strike anybody weird? Your faith made you well. 
Well, in the context of the passage, clearly her faith is not in herself or other doctors, but in Jesus. So her faith is in Jesus, which leads me to remind you of a very terrible saying that we say often in our culture. Have you ever heard somebody and seen somebody in a really hard situation and someone looks at them and just says this, just have what? Am I the only one who's seen people say this? Has anyone heard anyone say that? Just have faith. You'll see non-Christians say this in the world. You're going through a really hard time. Just have faith. What, what do you have faith in? Faith in like the generic goodness of the universe that things will all work out to be better? See, faith always must have an object. You can't just have faith faith you must have faith in something or someone you must have faith and trust me everybody has faith in something you are not at a neutral i just have no faith no you're putting faith in yourself in a person in a system in a president in a party or in jesus we're never at neutral we always have faith just like we always worship somebody or something so what are you putting your faith in today Clearly, this woman put her faith in a lot of things over the years, but finally she cast it all in Jesus. It's faith in Jesus that saves, both now and forever. So, she is not only physically well, but now she is spiritually well. Her body is redeemed as well as her soul. So every minute, every day, every week, every month, every hour of those 12 years of suffering led up to that one point. They're all building up to that point. And I can almost guarantee you, you know what, you know what? I could guarantee to you that if I were to meet that woman in heaven right now, she would not begrudge those 12 years because those 12 years led up to the moment she got to meet the love of her life, the very purpose of living, the great physician of her soul and her body, See, there is beautiful design in the timing of God. There is beautiful design in the timing of God. And this is so important for us. It's all of us. Every single one of us here has things in our life that we're not content with when it comes to timing. I wish this happened sooner. Or I wish this would happen now. We all feel that in many different ways. Whether it's physical or career or relational or something. And I want to remind you that there's beautiful timing in God's timing. There's beautiful design in God's timing. This raises a logical question for many of us as Jesus says, your faith has made you well. Does my wife Joanna just not have enough faith? Why is, this, why is she not healed yet? That's a logical question, right? Well, is she not healed because she doesn't have an, enough faith? Maybe. Maybe. If you read your Bible, there are times where people are not healed because they do not trust Jesus. That is one very good biblical reason why you may not be healed. Because you're not trusting in Jesus. And yet, the Bible is complicated. Sometimes you're not healed because you have unconfessed sin, according to James. Sometimes you're not healed because you're taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, according to 1 Corinthians The Bible is complicated in the timing and the reasons behind healing. And so with that said, there are a number of preachers out there 
especially on TV, who teach that if you just have enough faith, you will be healed. And if you're not healed, you don't have faith. And I just want to reject that as the oversimplistic, one-size-catch-all answer to any time someone has a sickness. That is not biblical. It can be biblical, but it's not always biblical. So if you have an ailment in your body, there's something in your body that is not right according to the new creative order, then I just want to remind you that there's divine design. There's beautiful design behind the timing of God. And you will be healed on this side or for sure on the next side. God is guaranteeing your healing. Jesus died for your healing, both spiritually and physically. And you may experience it now, but you definitely will experience it when he returns. We pray for it now, and we hope for it now, and yet God may just sustain you with grace to suffer well until it comes. So either God's going to answer your prayers with sustaining grace, or will answer your prayers by miraculous healing. Both are miraculous, though. Sustaining faith and suffering well is miraculous, and also uh, instant healing is miraculous. That was smooth. Now, another important thing to highlight in the passage is that Jesus, again, is moved by desperation. Think about the contrast between Jairus and, um, and, and this woman. One has status and acclaim and money, and the other has none. And both are receiving attention and mercy from God, not based off what they have, but the fact they realize they don't have. You guys following me? God is not impressed by their position or what they have, but the realization of what they don't have. And I just want to say one more thing that I forgot to say because I wasn't looking at my notes. But this woman of 12 years, she does not, what I mean woman of 12 years, the woman who suffered for 12 years, she does not have a daddy like Jairus fighting for her. And I think it's just so extra sweet that although she doesn't have a Jairus fighting for her, she has Jesus who, who redeems her and calls her daughter. That's so sweet. I love that. Write that in your Bible. That's so good. That's not from me. I got that from other people. Yet, when you look at the situation, you can imagine Jairus on the side watching this amazed. Whoa, whoa. And yet in the back of his mind, he's thinking, uh, this is all beautiful and all. And I definitely don't want to interrupt this beautiful scene. But let's get to my daughter because she's dying, Jesus. You know what I'm saying? I'd be like, okay, come on, Jesus. Can you do this a little faster? Because the time is of the essence. And his worst fears are, are realized. Look at what happens in verse 49. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. Talk about a lack of tact. While Jesus was held up with the crowds and healing the woman, the daughter died. Jesus' timing must have been maddening and painful and excruciating for the father. And in the words of Martha, when her brother Lazarus died, the phrase probably came to mind or this certain phrase, if only you would have been here, she wouldn't have died. Can you imagine that? If only you had been there, Jesus. Why did you waste your time? I'm so glad you did this miracle for this woman, but why did you wait so long? Again, the timing of God. I want to remind you that Jesus is never late. 
He's never ever been late. Although a lot of us are late to Sunday gatherings. Just throwing shade on you real quick. But Jesus is never late to anything. He's always on time. He's never in a hurry. And yet he's always on time. And I struggle with God's timing. There's a number of areas in my life that I'm like, God, why not this way? Why don't we have it this way yet? And yet, I want to remind us all, we don't see the full picture. We don't have his wisdom. I heard this quote recently. We have five-year plans. God has thousand-year plans. We have five-year plans. God has thousand-year plans. So for everything in our life that seems disarray, that doesn't seem like it fits, notice that it's fitting into a thousand-year plan, a tens of thousands of year plan, a million-year plan. And there's teaching in his timing. There's beautiful design behind his timing. Again, church, is there something in your life that you feel like God is late in? That you feel the temptation to be bitter at? Do you struggle like I do this, like, like I do with this timing? One side thought that came to me earlier. If you want to know if you struggle with trusting God in his timing, a good test is see how often do you grumble? How often do you grumble? Either out loud or in your heart. Because grumbling is a litmus test for your heart to see how much you're trusting. Because when you grumble, you're saying, God, there's a better way than this. I, I don't agree with how you're running the universe. I think I would do better, though we would never say such a thing like that. Check your heart of how much grumbling comes out of your heart. I know a lot of grumbling came out of my heart this week, and I've had to repent as this passage has been washing over me, as God has been exposing how much I'm not trusting his timing. Now, Jesus being Jesus anticipates what the Father must be feeling and thinking, and he says this in verse, uh, sorry, verse 50. Check this out. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Would you read this out loud with me? Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. Can you just say that? Do not fear, only believe. Do not fear, only believe. He says says that to the very soul of this man because he knows this man's probably panicking. My daughter is dead. My only daughter is dead. It's probably because you wasted your time with that woman. Great. Praise God. She's healed, but my daughter's dead. I can imagine that's how I would feel, at least on the inside. I probably wouldn't say it on the outside. Do not fear, only believe. This has been a reoccurring theme throughout Luke chapter 8. Do not fear, only believe. Do not have your eyes on the storm. I'm in the boat with you. Believe. Do not fear, though you have two legions of demons coming at you. I'm with you. Do not fear, believe. Do not fear, though you have an incurable disease and no one can heal. I'm with you. Believe. Do not fear that that person is dead because I... And the God that has power over life and death. Only belief. We fear the spheres of life that are untamable, unpredictable, powerful, like death and disease and demons and nature. And yet, Jesus speaks into all that and says, do not fear, only believe, church. What is that thing in your life right now that you need to hear him speak to your soul and say, do not fear, daughter. Do not fear, son. Only believe. I got this. I'm in the boat with you. I hold the whole world in my hands. Every atom is held together. Look at Colossians 1. You know, that that kind of mindset that he's holding the whole universe together. I got this. Do not fear. Only believe. What is your 
fear right now, church. Let him speak that into the depths of your soul. Daughter, son, do not fear, only believe. Please know that in any time we don't trust God, this is not just like a oopsie. I didn't trust you. We are literally saying that he is not good or smart or wise enough or powerful enough for our situation. It's a implied spitting in his face saying, God, you don't know as well as I do. I know better for my situation. Confess that to him if that's the case for you today. He is ready and eager to forgive us for doubting him. Now, before we get to the next scene, just note that in the West, mainly, funerals are very dignified and quiet and somber. But in the East and in many parts of the world, and especially in this time, funerals were pandemonium. People would be wailing and crying. There would be an art of ripping your clothes. There would be musical instruments and high shrills. And sometimes people would be mourning over lost people who died Um, Every time someone died, they would relive all the deaths of their family. It's chaos. So imagine this screaming and people going nuts. And Jesus walks into that scene, into that chaos, right into the heart of that storm. Verse 51. Hey, Ross, do you mind grabbing my water right there, the black one? I'm about to run out of steam. And Jesus enters into that chaos. Verse 51. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him. Thank you. Actually, can you guys read this with me? Verse 51 to 53. All right. And when? Why are they laughing? Well, it's easy for us to read the Bible and think, oh, they all expected miracles. And that's easy for us to say from our vantage point. But miracles were not normal. The girl was dead. And so they're laughing at Jesus. You're crazy, man. You're crazy. Who is this crazy, wild, religious fanatic walking in here? Why does Jesus use this language to describe the dead. What does he call the dead? Sleeping. This is a beautiful term that you see a little bit throughout the Old Testament. You see it more in the New Testament. Basically saying that those who trust in God through his son, trust in Christ, never really die. They just go to sleep. So he's speaking that over this daughter. Hey, she's not dead. She's just asleep. Let me go wake her up. Even though she's actually physically dead. This is a beautiful term, and I really encourage you to adopt this when you talk about Christians who've died. Don't call them dead. Call them asleep. I think that's a a biblical, beautiful term. And it gets at our greater hope. How do I lose my voice with a mic? Come on, guys. I'm better than this. So Jesus goes into the room with three of his disciples. Verse 54. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. Or in the Aramaic in Mark, I think it's Talitha Kumu. And he, her spirit returned. And she got up at once. 
and he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed and they charged him to tell no one what had happened. I want to highlight something very interesting. Did Jesus have to physically go to that woman, that daughter's house? Do you guys remember another story where Jesus didn't even have to leave where he was standing? The centurion. The centurion comes to him and says, hey, if you could just just say the word and she'll be healed. So Jesus isn't limited by geography. He doesn't be like, well, I have to see them. I have to touch them. I need the cameras there. Like he doesn't have limitations. And why then does he just go? Why doesn't he just say, oh, Jairus, you're good, bro. I got you. She's done. She's good. Just go back. She'll be healed. Why does he go there? And why does he touch her? What was her body before he touched her? What? Dead. She was a dead corpse. Is she ceremonially clean or unclean? So for him to touch a dead corpse would make him unclean. And yet Jesus is showing the power of his touch. Jesus is not one who sits back and just throws lobs at us while he stays clean with his nice sterilized gloves. He gets down in the dirt, in the grime. And he touches this girl and he wakes her up as easy as it is to wake up a child from a nap. Just rise. She's up. He shows again his divinity. He shows again that he has authority over disease and death. He shows that he is God and that no one can make him unclean, but his cleanliness makes the dirtiest clean, makes the most helpless hopeful. This is what only Jesus can do. He doesn't perform some long rain dance or ritual. He doesn't do something crazy. He literally just picks her up by the hand and she wakes up from her dead sleep. Who is this man? What kind of man is this? What kind of power is this? And that same power is the same power he has for your situation today. There's no situation, I bet there's no situation today in our group that is greater and graver than the situations we just talked about. Right? And yet, we can doubt. Well, God, that was then, this is now. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews 13, 8, right? The same Jesus that raised this little girl, like just waking up a child from a nap, and the same Jesus that healed, unintentionally healed a woman with a flow of blood for 12 years, just like that, is the same Jesus that's on your side, if you're trusting in him today. There's no difference. Beyond the beauty of these stories that we just saw, think about the grander beauty that these stories point to. See, Jesus heals this woman with the unclean, with unclean blood and raises the dead. And all of that foreshadows that Jesus will bleed one day for the sins of man. Jesus will one day die for the penalty of man. All that you see right here is just foreshadowing all that he will do in the coming days. And all that he will one day do. Because as he brings healing to this woman. And brings life to the death of this child. He will ultimately bring healing and restoration to all the brokenness in the world when he returns. This passage is beautiful. But it's just a foretaste of what is yet to come. Amen. But if you want this Jesus. You got to surrender to this Jesus. You got to trust this Jesus more than anything else. You can't put your trust in yourself. Remember, no faith is neutral. You're always putting faith in something. You're always worshiping something or someone. 
And if you're not trusting in Jesus and worshiping him, you're worshiping something else. And so I urge you, put your cares and your anxieties and all of your hope in Jesus alone. And if you don't know how to do that, come talk with me or some other believer here. We'd love to tell you about that. And as I wrap up for the Christians here, despite our struggle to trust God, because we all struggle at times to trust God, don't we? That too, Jesus died for. That too, Jesus lived for. Jesus never struggled with doubting God. Jesus never struggled to trust God. And yet his life, his perfect trusting of God is accredited to us through the cross as we put our hope in him. His life of faithfulness is given to us if we trust him. So friends, as I end, no matter how desperate your situation, Jesus has authority. If he has authority over death, disease, nature, demons, he has authority and power over your situation. And he doesn't just have authority, he has the good heart to go with it. And he has the wisdom on when to apply it. He can come through in his timing. There is beautiful design in his timing, church. So if you're struggling and trust him in his timing and you're fearful, do not fear, only believe. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.